The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody. I hope it's wonderful wherever you are. It's a little gray and rainy here, but for the first time in many, many, many weeks, when I look out my window, I am not looking at snow. So I'm excited. It must mean that spring is around the corner. So thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, a couple of things we're going to be talking about. Big one for many of you uh, who potentially have been getting some waitlist offers. You might be wondering, what does it really mean to be waitlisted? And really, almost more importantly, what is the likelihood that my application is actually going to get switched from waitlist to admit? And we're going to get some answers uh, from a colleague of mine, Kenan Dick, who's going to be here to discuss what students can do to improve or sometimes decrease those odds. We don't really like that, but that's the truth. Sometimes you can do things that aren't going to help. Um, college finance expert Jean Mahan is also going to be here to offer tips for reducing college costs once you're enrolled, including some tax breaks you may not know about. And in our final segment, we're going to take your questions, so send them in to us at gettingin.voiceamerica@gmail.com. But even better, give us a call during the show at 866-472-5788. But in our first segment, most importantly right now, I'm thrilled to welcome Greg Grauman, who's the Assistant Vice Provost of Undergraduate Admissions at American University. And he's here to talk to us about what it means to be test optional for the institutions that practice it. So welcome, Greg. Thanks, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So as we talk about this whole concept of test optional, I thought it might be really helpful for our listeners to get an understanding of what is test optional um, you know, just in basic terms. Sure. So a, a school that is test optional is saying that they will make a significant number of admissions decisions without the benefit of standardized testing. Um, the policies themselves from school to com- school come in many different flavors, but that's the, the, the basic uh, idea behind being test optional. And there are approximately 800 or just over 800 schools in the United States, four-year colleges that um, would would indicate that they are test optional. So, uh, that's a large number, and I think that's probably fairly surprising to a lot of people because, yeah. you know, I would say that maybe the thing I get the second most number of questions about, depending on the day, maybe the first most questions about would be, that's not exactly grammatical, but would be the question of standardized tests. You know, what kind of score do I need? Is it okay to take the ACT or the SAT? So it's interesting to know that, about 800 schools out there don't care about your test scores at all. So um, when did, or why, actually, more importantly, why sure. did American decide to adopt a, a test-optional policy? Sure. So, so we launched a pilot program in the fall of, of 2010, and 
our focus at the time and, and continues to be is to admit students who not only were the strongest academic students, but also who are really good fit for us. And we really did not want um, a student to look at our admitted student profile and just focus on the standardized test score and feel this isn't even a school that I should apply to. Right. Um, and they could be a, the, the best fit for us. And we were concerned that that would um, prevent very good applicants from even considering us. We also, at the time, and again in 2008, this was, or 2010, was just after our professional organization, the National Association for College Admissions Counseling, released a report on the use of standardized testing in undergraduate admissions, and they had been calling on colleges to evaluate whether standardized test scores were needed to admit students, and, and we took that recommendation seriously and had some, some good conversations here at the university and realized we felt we could make good admissions decisions without the benefit of standardized test scores if a student didn't want to submit them. Gotcha. Uh, so it's an interesting point, right? You didn't want people opting out of applying just because they saw a number on a piece of paper and their scores weren't there. So, well, then I guess I won't even consider this school. Uh, absolutely. Because never is a decision going to hinge just on one element, whether it be an essay, whether it be a recommendation letter, and certainly on standardized test scores. Um, I mean, I think as you look at colleges, your academic work, your transcript, the rigor of your curriculum, that's always going to be the most important thing. And so um, I I think letting students know that this is not what defines you, um, I think takes away a lot of stress in the process and hopefully brings to the forefront students that um, are great academic students but may not test as well. Right. So what is test optional really mean? I have a lot of families, when I talk to them about test optional schools, they're very skeptical. They are convinced that if you don't submit your test scores, the school is going to assume that they're low and therefore not take as close a look or you have to be even better than everybody else in order to be admitted if you don't have uh, standardized test scores as part of your file. Right. It's it's a trust issue, and 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 I and I do we certainly do hear that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, my my advice would be if you're looking at a school that is test optional, talk to them about what is their policy. How do they actually uh, use their policy? Um, so, speaking from from our perspective, we it really is a choice. Do you wish to submit them or not? We don't require additional writing samples. We also fully consider students for merit awards without testing, and. All that means for us is we have a longer review for that student. Um, that's probably why there are, there are fewer schools of our size that are mm-hmm. test optional because it does take longer to review a file without standardized testing. We are going to scrutinize even more closely the uh, transcript and the rigor of the curriculum um, uh, of a student without testing uh, versus one who has testing. But as we look, and this is you know, five years in now, the admit rate for students that uh, submit testing for us is comparable to that without testing. It really, truly is not a difference. It's just a different way to present yourself to the admissions committee. Gotcha. So what you're saying, what I'm hearing, and I want to put it plainly, is not submitting testing absolutely doesn't disadvantage you in the process. It's simply, It simply changes a little. It takes away one element, and so therefore it throws 
more light on the other elements of the file. Would that be pretty accurate? That's absolutely correct. And 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 I also would would wish to dispel the the thought that if you do not submit your standardized test scores, the assumption is your testing is modest or your testing is below average. And we don't work with that assumption. And from experience, we know that is also not the case. Um, in in our institution, anyone who submits scores, let's say from the College Board, if it was the SAT or the ACT, if they submit it before they apply, we'll have it on their record. We're not looking at it, but we have had opportunities to see what a student's standardized test scores are. And there's some students who have phenomenally high, above our average test scores, but just like philosophically that we are a school that does not emphasize standardized testing and they'll apply via test optional. So I would hope that, that your, uh, your audience would take that to heart, um, that it is not an admissions officer looking and assuming that your testing must not be strong if you're going test optional. Right. I would hope they would take it to heart as well. I love the test optional piece because I do have students who work extraordinarily hard in school, do very well, are really involved in their school communities and their local communities, are just wonderful applicants, and yet their standardized test scores sometimes can hold them back. Sure. Um, and so it's really nice to have that as an option. But I also do encounter families and students who are, like you say, very philosophically opposed to the idea that one test can sum them up. And so it actually, I've seen it draw them to certain schools who share that philosophy. So it's sort of um, an interesting mix of students. Yes, so, yes, we see both. Would you say that test optional has been successful for you at American, and and why do you feel that way? I, I do. I do feel it has been successful. Um, when we launched our pilot in, in the fall of 2010, um, one of the things that we committed to as well was to study the progress of those who did enroll without standardized testing. And what we found um, really was, was similar to the many decades of research which have been done at, at institutions that went to test optional, that students who um, matriculated here at the university in the first semester, their GPA was slightly lower than those with testing. Um, but in that second semester, in the spring semester, it actually was higher than those who had submitted standardized testing. So we have found um, it to be a success here at the university in that the students that were admitting without testing are thriving. Um, and it's not a surprise, but it was, you know, certainly has been verified by, by the, the data that, we, that we've studied. And that's given us confidence to continue as a, a test optional institution. Right. And for people out there who are listening, one of the reasons that standardized tests are used at a lot of schools is that there is this feeling that there's predictive value in how a student scores on the test and then how they'll do when they're actually a student. So what's always interesting with the test optional schools is to see that there may not be significant predictive value in that at all, at least in terms of what you are seeing in the actual students who you're admitting who maybe have more modest scores but are still doing just as well as students with higher scores, um, that there isn't necessarily a correlation. And so, yeah, and, and certainly not beyond that, that first semester. Right. So I generally direct, so families listening out there right now might be wondering, this is great, um, but maybe we don't want to go to D.C., or um, we are looking at American, but we're curious about what other schools out there are test optional. I frequently direct my families to a website called fairtest.org. That's F-A-I-R 
TEST.org. Are you aware of any other places where stu- where families can search for schools that are test optional, or do you use the that, same? That resource? would be the direction um, that I would also would would uh, would send students. So um, that 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 would be the, the resource that I have found helpful because we we do have conversations with students who um, we will talk about being test optional, and we may not be the right fit for them, mm-hmm. but that opens up a whole possibility that wow, there are schools out there that don't require my standardized test scores, um, and, and we would also reference them to fairtest.org. Absolutely, and I find that it's updated fairly frequently, so I would encourage families to check that out and, of course, also to check out American. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it, and uh, I do hope that people take what you're saying to heart and believe Believe in the fact that test optional truly means test optional and isn't something that's going to put anybody at a disadvantage. Not so at thanks all. so much, Greg. Thank you, Beth. Take care. You too. So if you're one of the uh, somewhat unlucky people who were actually offered a space on a wait list, I want you to stick around for our next segment because we're going to talk about that. And then later in the show, we're also going to have a special offer for listeners. So stick around for that as well. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. My next guest, Kenan Dick, is my current colleague and also a former senior admissions officer at a number of schools, including Swarthmore, Drexel, and Johnson State. And he is here to talk to us about the wait list. Welcome, Kenan. Oh, thank you, Beth. Let's start with the first big question, maybe, that we have listeners who aren't familiar with this. I know that a lot of people who listen in aren't aren't currently involved in the process. Maybe they're just getting started thinking about it. So let's start with Mm -hmm. something really basic, which is, what is the wait list? What is that wait list? Okay. 
Well, I think the, the main purpose for the waitlist um, is for enrollment managers to be able to make sure that they get the right number of freshmen that they need for their class. Most schools, not all, but most schools, um, they need a certain number of, of freshmen to come in because they need a, a certain num- uh, number of tuition dollars in order to fund the university, right? Mm-hmm. So they need to make sure that they've got the right number of kids in the class, and if they fall short, the wait list is the option that they can go to to make sure that they get that requisite number. So oftentimes when, um, you know, when I was working at Software College, for instance, we usually were looking for an incoming class of right around 365 freshmen. Mm-hmm. And we would waitlist students just to make sure that if, you know, if something happened or you know, if other schools went to their waitlist and took a couple of our kids, we would have a reserve there available so we could get back up to that 365 number. Right. So, and so one, your yep, rates sorry. are a little bit, what's that? No, I was, keep going, and then I'll ask okay. my question. <laughs> okay. Yield rates are a little bit unpredictable, so um, you never know exactly how many students, you know, once you put those offers out there, how many students are going to choose you uh, and your institution. So it's just a, it's a kind of a, a safety valve just to make sure that you get the, the number of, of kids that you need. That you need, the right. Other, um, the other possible use for it, and much less common, certainly, than that main role of the wait list, is sometimes that it can offer an avenue for kids who may have substandard scores to be able to get into the class that, um, that you can't just take them uh, normally in regular decision or, um, you know, in an early action round. So sometimes it, it, it offers them a way to kind of get, get past that. It's a, a set of scores that we don't necessarily have to report, and it gives them a, a kind of a backdoor, if you will. Gotcha. So, right. It doesn't have to maybe those waitlisted kids, if they're ultimately admitted, their numbers don't get factored into that core class that you admitted in in regular. Um, Correct. That's interesting. So one thing that people listening may not be aware of is the way that admissions works in general, which is to say, when you are hoping to enroll a class of 365, give or take a few people, you need to send out Far or not far more, it depends on the school, you need to send out more acceptance letters than simply 365. And it is a bit of a balancing act to find out who's going to accept your offer, who's going to accept a different school's offer and turn you down, and it can make for something very tricky. And that is the original purpose of the waitlist and still the current purpose of the waitlist. However, mm-hmm. I think one big thing for me and and one of the reasons that I titled the episode waitlisted the new rejection letter is because at a lot of schools, waitlists have grown all out of proportion with any um, reasonable number of students that might actually come off the waitlist and get admitted into the class. And that touches on this idea of a courtesy waitlist. So what is a courtesy waitlist? Good question. Um, Essentially, the courtesy waitlist is a student that um, has usually will have some sort of ties to the institution that you don't want to deny to you know send a deny letter to. Mm-hmm. So that may be the son or daughter of you know one of your faculty members or a legacy or a donor or you know someone who's important to the institution in general that you want to kind of you know say no but do it in a much softer way. And I think one of the anxieties, um, you know, for many parents is, you know, how do I know if, if my kid's a courtesy waitlist or, you know, an actual waitlist that has a chance of getting in? And, and it's really hard to know. 
So, um, you know, the, you kind of have to, I think, you know, my feeling is you kind of have to let that go because um, you don't know if, if you're on that list. And the other thing to keep in mind is not a whole lot of schools will do this. Um, it's usually the very, very selective schools that, that might have this kind of practice. But for the most part, you know, if you're on a wait list, chances are that it's a viable wait list. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I, I certainly think that the wait list that I see people getting the most excited about would be often this, the wait list at the most selective level. So, mm-hmm. for example, when I was at Penn, uh, we frequently had a wait list that was about as long as our admitted student list. Uh, and mm-hmm. there was no way that everybody we admitted was going to turn us down. And so there were a lot of students on that wait list who were really, it was, as you said, just a nice way of saying no. Right. Uh, you know, and sometimes it's those people who have ties to the institution. And then also, sometimes you just don't want to say to a student who's a top student who you really like, but you just didn't have room for, you, you hated to say a flat out no. You sort of wanted to say, hey, in another world, in another year, uh, if I just had room, you would have been someone I wanted in the class, but we just aren't going to be able to do it. And, um, exactly and th- right. that's, you know, that's, so it's also partially us as admissions officers hating to say no sometimes to some really fabulous kids. I don't know that right. that makes it any easier, but, um, there mm-hmm. you have it. That is what goes yeah. on. And so, oftentimes when, when we would look at, you know, our, our decisions as a, as a whole and you look at specific high schools and you say, geez, we're taking number seven in the class, but we're, we're not going to be able to admit number two, mm-hmm. then you don't want to say no to number two, right? So, yep. it, you know, it feels better to the guidance counselor and the family if you, if you wait list that number two kid um, when you're taking number seven. Yeah, and there are differing schools of thought on whether or not it really is better, but it happens, mm-hmm. and it's probably not going to stop happening. So there you have it. Right. So in the very basic, what do you do? What should a student do? How can a parent help if they are on the wait list? Good question. Usually the first thing that you need to do is respond to some sort of mechanism that they offer. So you either have to go to a website or send in a card or whatever it might be that actually keeps you on the wait list. Um, so if, you know, if you get that letter and there's some sort of response, you want to respond to that really quickly because that lets the, the school know that you're interested in staying on that wait list and you're a viable candidate for a wait list admit later on. So that's number one. And then number two is usually shortly after that, maybe a couple weeks after that, I advise my students to write what we call the love letter, which is, you know, the letter to uh, the admissions person just saying, you know, um, that, you know, X college is really a top choice of mine. I'm really interested in it. Um, it remains a, a choice that I would, I would uh, certainly go to if I was uh, fortunate to be admitted and that kind of, of language just to let them know that you remain interested. You'd be surprised how many students, if they get that waitlisted letter, immediately lose interest in the school and mm-hmm. are no longer, no matter, you know, what you offer them, they're not coming. So, right. um, so you want to, to send that signal. Then number two, you want to send any updates that you may able, might be able to offer. Number one would be third quarter grades if you're able to get them, or third semester, or second semester, uh, second trimester grades, excuse <laughs> me. Um, and you know if there's any updates to awards or activities or things of that nature that you can update the admissions officer with that aren't present in your application, then this is a good opportunity to kind of continue that dialogue. 
So I think those would be the, the three main steps that, uh, that I usually recommend for students who are on the wait list. What about showing up on campus? Um, different schools have different philosophies on this. I think for most of the selective schools that we're talking about, yep. um, that is not a good idea. Um, right. that, that puts the admissions officer in a really, really uncomfortable place. Um, and so, you know, if they offer it, then, then that's great. You can take, it up on, take them up on that offer. But for, mo- for the most part, if you kind of show up to campus and, um, you know, and, and ask to meet with somebody or something of that nature, that's just very, very awkward for the admissions person. So I, would, I don't recommend doing that. I would echo that strongly. I think if we all got together one night, uh, all of us here at College Coach were all former senior admissions officers, and we shared stories about students doing crazy things to try and get off wait lists, the overwhelming uh, stories would be negative. They would be hurting students' chances. Um, Parents can hurt Mm -hmm. students' chances as well. I once had a mother show up and um, lie to the front desk about who she was uh, to get me to come out. And I can tell you right now that admissions officers do have a say in who's going to come off the wait list. And if you are doing things that you were specifically instructed not to do or doing things like lying to get someone to come out and meet with you, um, mm-hmm. you've just shot yourself completely in the foot right there. And that file, that waitlist file, is going to go from probably waitlisted to deny, and certainly not right. in the other direction. Um, yep. So I think, you know, good advice on what to do. And then to your point, not everyone feels that way. There are schools that might say, hey, come to our admitted student reception anyway, uh, mm-hmm. And maybe what they were trying to gauge was how interested you really were. So if you show up to that, that might be the sign to them, and that might move you from an, uh, a wait list to an admit. But you need to get – the school needs to tell you that that's okay. I would exactly. never assume that that's okay. Exactly. Uh, and my feeling is that the, you know, the more selective the school is, the chances are that um, the less they want to see you on campus. Yes, quite frankly, there's a lot of students on that wait list that were dying to get in, and it's just, it's just a, a painful process for the admissions person. Exactly, they can't they can't welcome all of their admitted students and all of their waitlisted students either. And for those of you mm-hmm. listening and thinking, well, I don't really care how painful it is for the admissions officer. I, I feel you. I hear what you're saying, and I can appreciate that uh, as well. Uh, because it's your child or it's you and, and you're feeling your own pain. But they still, at this point, until you get moved from a wait list to admit, they're still the ones who are going to make the decision. And you really do need to make sure that you're making careful, smart choices. Because if you um, upset them, they do have the power to say, uh-uh, we're not going to take you. Exactly. Um, we have time for one more question. Mm-hmm. What happens? So if you're you're on a wait list, you've sent your love letter, you're really hoping that you might come off of the wait list, but you're, are you going to hear in time? What happens if you have, the deadline is approaching? Can you tell another school, hey, I'd like to attend, but if I get off this wait list, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, can I have an extension? How do you handle that piece? That's a good question. Um, and I don't think that there's necessarily any one answer to it. But in general, um, you want to make sure that you have your, your plan A set. The wait list is your plan B. And so what that generally means is that of the other schools that you were admitted to, then you're going to submit your deposit to those schools um, because chances are that's where you're going to be attending in the fall anyway. 
Yep. And so you send in your your deposit, you take care of all the, your business that you need to with that um, plan A institution. And then if you get offered a wait list after May 1st, which is the national deadline for sending in that, dep- that deposit, if you get a wait list offer after May 1st, you're going to forfeit that deposit that you sent to your plan A school. Um, and you, they may give you some time in order to get a financial aid package between the time that you're offered the uh, wait list admit to the time that you have to commit, but it's usually a very short window of time because they need to know very quickly if you're going to enroll in in the fall. The tendency, however, is that they're going to be pretty standard packages. They're not going to necessarily have a lot of scholarship offer and the kinds of incentives that you would find uh, possibly in March and April. Right. Okay, great. Kenan, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And um, we have some great stuff on the College Coach blog about waitlists mm-hmm. and um, actually Kenan also in our in our news section there Kenan was uh, interviewed by the Wall Street Journal about this very topic as was I and there's some good information in those articles so visit our website www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting in and you can find lots more resources related to the website there uh, we're going to be back in just a minute we have advice for families on reducing college costs once you or your child is enrolled and don't forget I have a special offer available to everyone listening today that I'm going to announce a little later in the show. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Jean Mahan, who's a former senior financial aid officer at Tufts University and Quinn Sigamond Community College, I'm really impressed with my ability to say that word, has some good tips on how to cut costs and save money while you're enrolled in college. Welcome, Jean. Thanks, Beth. It's great to be here today. I'm super excited to have you talk us through some of these things. I know that right now 
meeting college costs is obviously a really big thing. Um, and when you look at the cost of attendance that a college can publish on its website, it can be really overwhelming. But you have some really great ways to think about reducing those costs or mm-hmm. maybe repurposing costs um, that your child is currently incurring. So let's start with the first thing. When you receive your child's tuition bill, what's the, what should parents be looking for? Well, you really want to look at that bill carefully and see what's being charged. For example, you know, make sure that you're not being charged lab or studio fees if your child is enrolled enrolled in a lab or studio course that semester. One of the biggest things that parents overlook is the um, health insurance that the school automatically puts on everyone's bill. So students are required to carry health insurance while they're in school. And in order to make sure that happens, schools just proactively put that on everyone's bill. Make sure that if you're um, the, the plan that you have will cover your child while they're away at school that you waive that because that could save you $1,000 or more per year. Wow. And before you do waive it, I would just check with your insurance company to make sure that your child can use the campus health center or that any costs they may incur if they're a distance from home would be covered under your health insurance plan before you waive that. So that's gotcha. the biggest thing right there. Um, you know, make sure that you're being billed for the right meal plans. I mean, if you only want your child to have a 15-meal plan a week, make sure it's not the 21-meal plan a week. Make sure that the number of credits they're enrolled for is what you're being charged for. So some schools, it's a flat rate, whether you're taking, you know, four courses or six courses. At a lot of um, state universities, you're charged by the credits. So if your child's only taking 12 or 15, make sure they're not being charged for 18. So just looking it over carefully just to make sure they're not missing anything, you're not being charged incorrectly for any items that are on the bill. Right, just like you would look at any bill, right? Exactly. Don't assume it's correct just because it's coming from the college. Right, because I talked to a student one day and he couldn't understand why his uh, room and board charge was so high and it turned out that it was double billed. But he hadn't noticed it. And when he called, he was able to get a $2,000 refund. So just to be careful that, you know, what you're paying for is actually what you're getting. What you're getting. One thing that we mentioned uh, in the show description and and that I know we get a lot of questions about is that we've heard about tax breaks for Mm -hmm. education. So can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. I think you're referring to the American Opportunity Tax Credit. That's really the biggest one. And that's a credit that families who um, earn less than $180,000 a year, it's a credit of up to $2,500 per student. And it's for qualified education expenses, and you sometimes hear that referred to as QEEs. And the qualified education expenses for the American Opportunity Credit are tuition, required fees, and course-related books, supplies, and equipment. What QEEs are not are room and board, transportation, insurance, medical fees, and any student fees that aren't required for enrollment. And, you know, so it's, it's pretty straightforward. Um, the other expense that wouldn't qualify is if you're paying all of your child's expenses with a 529 savings plan. So if you think you might be eligible for the credit, it might be worthwhile to pay a few dollars out of pocket rather than using another tax advantage program. Um, as I said, it's up to 2500 You can use it for, if you have two or three children in school at the same time, you can use it for each child. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're filing single, it's uh, your modified adjusted gross is less than $90,000. If you're filing married joint, it's less than 180000 And 
you know, it's amazing how many families aren't taking advantage of this credit. Um, my colleague Shannon Vasconcellos wrote a blog post recently that's on our on our website right now that said more than one and a half million eligible families aren't claiming the AOC, which wow. means they're really leaving a lot of money on the table each year. When we talk about recycling or repurposing money, I mean, you get that refund back and you could use it to pay some of your next year's expenses. Absolutely. You could put it so, toward the next year. And then exactly. when they're done and graduated, you could put it towards the vacation you have <laughs> well earned deserved. yourself. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, I've heard that you can sometimes cut costs on living expenses, but that's a little bit amorphous. Um, can you give us some details about what that means? Sure. So, you know, first of all, if your child's living on campus, you might want to consider that they're not living in the swankiest dorm on campus. You know, you go on those college tours, and they're going to take you to their most beautiful, luxurious um, dormitory. And that's more than likely not where your child is going to end up as a freshman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you might find that living in that kind of red brick dorm with two or even three roommates is going to be a lot cheaper than living in the apartment-style dorm that's on campus that's, that's brand spanking new. Um, You know, again, meal plans are another place where you might be able to save a little money. One of my children was on a 21 meal plan and slept through breakfast and had a class at lunch, so clearly wasn't eating 21 meals a week. So the next year we cut that back. Um, No college student ever went hungry. There's tons of food in the dorm. (laughs) And most of these meal plans come with... um, you know, dining dollars, they, they call them different things at different schools that can be used on most of the on-campus dining venues as well as some off-campus restaurants. So that's another, you know, way to look at whether or not you can cut back. A lot of students are um, living off-campus these days, and so you know, maybe instead of just having one other roommate, that they get a two-bedroom and share it with three other people. Mm-hmm. Um, it can certainly cut down on the expenses, on the utilities, on the rent, but you might want to make sure that you're not violating any zoning laws. Um, schools with high-density neighborhoods oftentimes limit the number of unrelated people that can live in an apartment. And so you'd want to make sure that, you know, cramming four kids into an apartment isn't violating any public health or any zoning rules in that community. Um, but it's certainly going to be helpful when, you know, when you're um, looking at that. Um, you know, your child's student ID can be a gold mine when it comes to discounts. You know, remind them to ask when they go out to a restaurant or to a store, you know, if there is a student ID, I mean, a student discount that they can take advantage of a lot of entertainment venues, museums, um, lots of things that they can maybe get a discount for with their student ID. Um, and one thing about the dorms, too, that I, I want to mention, you know, you might want to ask your child before they register for dorms each year, before they have to deposit, that they run their choices past you first. I have a friend that has twins in college, and one when she got the bills last summer, one child's bill was significantly higher than the other, and it turns out that he had um, chosen to live in a much more expensive apartment-style dorm than his sister. And mm-hmm. so it was, you know, definitely several thousand dollars more, and she was quite surprised by that. So just work <laughs> something out with your child where they're, you know, they're going to run their housing choices by you before they sign on the dotted line for something that may cost more than you're willing to pay. And to your point about the whole using the college ID, I mean, I know that um, we purchase a season pass to uh, a ski resort mm-hmm. that we frequent. And next year, when my stepson is enrolled in college, the cost of his pass is about half the price of the cost of his pass this year. And exactly. So, and that's yeah, the great thing huge... to ask. And a lot of, you know, that's a great way for uh, entertainment venues to attract young people to their mm-hmm. 
um, because they know that students aren't going to be probably skiing every single weekend because they've got homework to do. But huh. my daughter, you know, is a is the consummate bargain hunter, and she was anytime she was at any kind of a retailer or restaurant, always asked about. Um, Student, uh, student discounts and was really surprised at some national retailers to, it wasn't significant, maybe 10 or 15%, but, you know, again, any yeah, dollar you can keep in your pocket is worthwhile. So mm-hmm. yeah. It definitely adds up for sure. Yeah, sure does. What about books? You buy all these books for a class, you only need them for a semester unless mm-hmm. it's the thing you're majoring in. And even then, often these are books you're never going to need again. Do you have suggestions for how to keep that expense more manageable? Because Absolutely. I know that adds up. I remember yeah. it. It really, really does. I mean, textbooks have gotten so expensive in recent years. And probably the worst place to buy your textbooks, and I hate to say this, is the college bookstore. The markup (laughs) is extremely high. And you can buy, you know, all of us that went to college probably bought some used copies from other classmates or um, upperclassmen while we were in school. But now you can buy them online, you know, major Mm -hmm retailers like Amazon, like Barnes & Noble. There are also a lot of online rental companies now. So, you know, you might be taking a survey course or you're taking that, that algebra, college algebra class that you're never going to use that book again. And sometimes you can see um, really significant discounts by renting the textbooks. And they make it so easy. They send it to you and they either give you a pre-printed return um, address label or they even give you an envelope that you just stick in the mailbox or in a UPS uh, pickup location. So they make it very, very easy. And a lot of times if you just put the ISBN number into, um, you know, a search engine, it will come up with several different um, companies that that are renting that book and you can do some comparison shopping right online. Personally, I've used them myself and have found that the, you know, I've gotten the books even when I waited until a couple of days before the class started. I've gotten the books very, very quickly and mm-hmm. the return has been just so easy. It's just really so much nicer than, you know, spending $140 for a book that you can rent for 34 So definitely um, consider renting. And if your child is a really... Um, you know, organized individual and, and has a friend that might be just as organized, they could consider buying used books together, sharing those books, and then selling them at the end of the semester. It does mm-hmm. take a little bit of coordination, but I've seen it done before. And, you know, some of those courses you're never going to take again. You might have a core curriculum that you're trying to satisfy. So definitely um, that's, that's some ways to um, save some money. And don't forget the library. A lot of professors will put copies on reserve so that you can read them in the library. And the War and Peace that you buy, you know, at, at the bookstore is the same one that's in the library. Right. It hasn't changed. So you can get it there for free. Um, so just a few ways that you can save money on probably what's going to be one of your biggest expenses outside of tuition and fees. I love, love, love the renting textbooks. I had no idea that mm-hmm. existed in the, in, in the vein of you learn something new every day. <laughs> when I'm done with the show today, I'm going to be calling up my husband and letting him know because, as I mentioned, we have someone starting college yep. just next year. So I think rental books are in our yep. future. That's I am so totally exciting. in love with the rental concept. I've been using it myself for the past few semesters, and I'm totally, I'm totally sold. So. All right. Well, I am too, just by your description. So we're going to be back here in uh, right after the break. We're going to answer your questions. We actually have a caller on the line, and she has a call, a, a question that I think you're going to address, Jean, because it's finance related. We're also, I'm also going to let you know about that special offer. So stay tuned. Streaming live. 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Before we go to your questions, I did want to finally let you know what that free special offer that we have going on. So if you visit www.getintocollege.com, forward slash guides. Again, it's www.getintocollege.com forward slash guides. We have two free guides available to you. They're really great. They were put together by my colleagues, and they are all about 10 tips for finding private scholarships. And then the second guide is about finding the perfect fit school. These are only going to be available uh, this week. And once next week's show airs, they will no longer be available to you for free. So all you have to do is visit that website, www.getintocollege.com forward slash guides and fill out the form and we will uh, send those guides to you. So we actually have our first caller. I'm very excited. And um, she has a finance related question, but I wanted to welcome her to the show. Irene, welcome. Hi there. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks. Where are you calling from? Uh, New York. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much for calling in. I know you have a question, um, so fire away, and let's see if we can answer it for you. Okay, well, um, just a little background. I have twins who are going to college for the first time next year, and we've put 100% of their college savings into the 529th, and we were expecting to just, you know, uh, you know pay that down um, with the tuition, for the tuition. However, um, now that you're talking about these um, educational tax credits, we were wondering, what is the maximum amount that we should be um, paying their tuition out of of pocket? You were saying that the American Opportunities Credit was 2,500, so would that be 5,000 that we should be withholding from putting into 529 so we can take advantage of the um, tax credit? Jean, yeah. I defer to you on this one. Oh, great. 
Thanks, Irene, for that question. And you are eligible to, um, you know, get the credit if your modified adjusted gross income is less than 180000 You can take it for each child. And it's $4,000 in expenses that you would have to pay out of pocket to qualify for the credit. Per child? Mm-hmm. Yes. And what, how, what about um, combining that with the lifetime learning credit? Can I do both? Uh, no, you can only do one or the other. So you'd want to do the American Opportunities Credit first because that it's limited to four years. If your children went on after that, you might be eligible to do the lifetime learning credit. Okay, got it. Great. So I should withhold four thousand mm-hmm. dollars per child, right, a year. Great. Thank you, guys. You're welcome. Thanks so much, Irene. Appreciate the call. Appreciate your help. Okay. Great. Okay, so there was a question that came in, and I think Kenan started to address this or touched on it briefly when he and I were talking about wait lists. And this came from uh, a student who's actually wondering, been waitlisted and curious, how do I find out you know, where I stand on the wait list, what number I am, and what my chances are of getting off the wait list. Um, so you might be interested to know that wait lists are not numbered at all. They, uh, at, at, at least at the vast majority of schools, I've never found a school that did have a numbered wait list. So if you are from a school where you do number your wait list, I would love to have you on as a guest and talk through that a little bit. But from my perspective and that of all my colleagues, none of our institutions ever numbered our wait list. You go to the wait list to fill holes in your class. And typically that goes beyond simply we lost someone or someone is not enrolling and we need to enroll 800 students and we only had 799. It's also usually we've got more females enrolled than males and we are short on engineering students. And so my dean might come to me and say, I need one more male engineer. And he might even say from Connecticut because our Connecticut numbers are down a little bit and we want to make sure that we're enrolling um, enough students from that area. I throw Connecticut out there. It's probably a bad example because we always had plenty of students from Connecticut. So a better example would maybe be... um, Wisconsin or South Carolina or uh, North Dakota. And um, so we were looking always to fill holes in the class when we moved people off of the wait list and into the admitted pool. As far as figuring out where you stand, um, you basically can't. <laughs> it's very difficult. Um, you could try calling the admissions officer to just let him or her know that you're still very interested Um and asking if they can give you a sense of what your chances are, I would say that 99.9% of the time they're going to say, thank you so much. Unfortunately, I really don't know. I don't know if we're going to be going to our wait list. And I, if we do, I'm not sure if you're going to be the person that we're going to pull off the wait list because I won't know until our class is more fully enrolled. Um, so the, the real, the only thing that you can really do is write that love letter, maybe make a phone call. Not all schools are going to be open to a phone call, but some might, uh, so that they at least know that you're interested. If they don't know you're interested, the likelihood that you come off that wait list is pretty slim. If they at least know that you're interested through the proper channels, remember, not about um, showing up on campus if you've been asked not to show up and doing other crazy things, but appropriately showing interest is a, is a way to at least increase your chances a little bit. 
Gene, we had another question come in, and that is, um, or actually it was a question really that you and I had talked about that we didn't have a chance to touch on, and that was about how do you save money on travel expenses, especially when students are, tr- are attending school farther from home and maybe they have uh, airline tickets to purchase or they need to travel on by train. How do you save money on that? So, you know, it might be worth looking at, you know, a credit card that's um, aligned with a specific airline that services the area where your child's going to school. You know, you might get some frequent flyer points, especially if you travel, you might be able to transfer them to your child. You know, if your child's going to be on an Amtrak or using, you know, public transit, you might want to purchase some sort of a card or, you know, uh, if you live in New England and your child's going to be living in Boston, you might want to get buy a monthly T-Pass. You might want to sign up for Amtrak Rewards so that you're getting some points if they're going back and forth that way. Um, several years ago, I knew uh, twins who went to a, a large college in upstate New York, and they lived in New England, and they were quite entrepreneurial young men, and they decided that rather than them paying for themselves to get home, they would hire like a, a bus, and they would get all the kids that were going to the New York, Massachusetts area to get on this bus, and it stopped in like two or three places, and so they would drive for free, and everyone else would split the cost of the bus. So I thought I that was a pretty cool story. idea. Yeah, yeah you know, I, I don't know if they were business majors, but at least they were, they were forward-thinking. So, yes. you know, sometimes if, you're, if your child has, um, you know, that entrepreneurial bug, maybe they can put it to good use. You know, if your child has a car but and will be living at school, really consider whether it's necessary to have that car on campus. Most colleges make it very unattractive. They either give you a parking space like miles away or they charge you so much in parking fees each semester that it really, you know, could be $300 a semester for a parking spot. So it might not really be a good plan to bring that. Some schools limit freshmen to, to not having a car at all. But, you know, really um, going forward, do you really want that expense? Because it could be, you know, could be really cutting into your budget. Um, so, you know, um, think about, you know, maybe just not doing that at all because you could also save some money on your insurance. Mm-hmm. If your child's far away from home, you may be able to get a break on your insurance since they won't be using the car that much. But um, really, that's a way to save some money. Great. And certainly something to think about. Uh, We're talking, Gene and I, of course, today, the focus is on saving money once you're in college. Mm -hmm. But as a family, super important to consider the fact that it might be great if you live in Chicago and want to attend school in California or Hawaii. uh, And I'm sure the weather looks very appealing, especially at this time of year. But the fact is that it's going to be more expensive when you factor in having to travel there and you're not going to drive. You're going to have to fly and you want to make sure that you count that in when you're putting together your budget so it doesn't come as a surprise to you later on. Right. And I think another thing that families forget, if you live on one coast and your child is going on the other coast, what are you going to do with their belongings during the summer? It's not like you're going to be driving cross country and loading up that car and driving again. So you also have to factor in the cost of storing their their gear for, you know, three maybe four months, and that can add. So, you know, all those little costs that we forget um, can really, really add up after a while. 
Absolutely. Jean, thank you so much. Uh, and thanks to my other guests, Kenan and Greg. I hope you'll join us for next week's episode of Getting In. We're hopefully going to be talking about the new Common App prompts. They were promised to be released earlier this month, but they haven't been out yet. So if they're available, we'll talk about them. Otherwise, we'll talk about something else. Uh, if uh, those of you just getting started in the process, we're going to be talking about a timeline, things to do when your child is a freshman, a sophomore, or a junior. And we're also going to welcome back Lori Peltier, who's going to talk through how to review financial aid packages and avoid award traps. Don't forget, visit um, www.getintocollege.com forward slash guides for those free guides and then come back next week. Um, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, and we'd love to take more calls. Thanks so much to Irene for being our very first caller. Uh, the number is 866-472-5788, and you can also send your questions to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. We'll be right back.